Today's episode is brought to you by Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. It's time to get energized. Welcome to Skim This. We're not quite at the place where we can safely have an election-free episode, but for the first time in what feels like months, politics isn't our lead story. Because there are some big changes going on in the world of business that could impact what our daily lives look like for years to come. Google's the first to tell employees, you don't need to come back for a year. For millions, the reality of working from home could be permanent. This could have significant repercussions for workers, for companies, and for the marketplace. This week, we'll talk to a Harvard Business School professor on how businesses and employees should adapt if work from home drags on indefinitely. We've also got the story on why this sound and this sound the President of the United States could soon be reunited. But before that, we've got some quick updates on the U.S. exit from the Paris Climate Agreement, the status of President Trump's election lawsuits, and Pfizer's flashy new COVID-19 vaccine. Oh, and our usual host will be back next week. All right, let's do it. First up, you may have heard some good news this week about the search for a COVID-19 vaccine. News of a successful coronavirus vaccine. Pfizer and BioNTech reporting the first results from their phase three vaccine trial. 90% effective in the group of drug trial volunteers. 90% effective, huh? Gigi Quick Gronval is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. They were seeing signals that 90% of the people who had the vaccine did not get COVID. She says what we're learning about this vaccine, developed by the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, is definitely good news. Since the results tell us that if you vaccinated 100 people, 90 of them wouldn't catch COVID. That's almost as good as approved vaccines we've been using for a long time, like the one for measles, mumps, and rubella. Another reason this is such a big deal? Even though governments and companies have been pouring billions of dollars into finding a COVID vaccine, researchers were worried a vaccine could be hit or miss. Kind of like the flu vaccine, which is more effective some years than others. So Pfizer's news means, yes, a vaccine is possible, and it could actually work pretty well. But even though Pfizer might be the only name you've heard in the same breath as vaccines this week, it's not the only name in the game. According to the World Health Organization, Pfizer's vaccine is one of 11 that are currently in the later stages of development. And Pfizer's success is good news for its competitors. The fact that the Pfizer candidate was so effective, it actually is encouraging not just for this vaccine, but for all of them because they're all targeting the same part of the virus. And it shows that a vaccine is possible. Gronval also says this week's vaccine news also raises hopes about how soon we could actually get a vaccine. Though she's also quick to point out, it's still not going to be immediately enough for everybody who wants a vaccine to get it. Pfizer's vaccine still needs to get approved by U.S. regulators, and the company isn't planning to submit its application for that until it passes more safety checks later this month. And we should point out this vaccine faces more logistical challenges than some others at similar stages of development. It's administered in two doses, meaning vaccine manufacturers need to make two shots per person. Plus, you actually have to go and get vaccinated twice, several weeks apart. And it requires ultra cold storage. Not everybody has a minus 80 freezer lying around. No matter how you slice it, this is gonna be a very challenging distribution. 
Plus, no one's sure how long a vaccine, even if it is 90% effective, would offer protection for. Gronval says Pfizer's results suggest this one's more likely to offer seasonal protection. Again, kind of like that flu vaccine. We don't know how long the vaccine is going to last and how long protection is going to be there for the people who get it. It is probably not going to be a lifetime protection vaccine. So overall, Pfizer's results are promising, but there's still a lot that we don't know, including when people can start getting vaccinated. For now, Gronval says, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay socially distant, and keep an eye on the trials. This is good news that a vaccine is on the horizon. It's not here yet. So after what felt like the longest week ever, last Saturday, Joe Biden was declared the president-elect of the United States by every major news outlet. But that's not what President Trump thinks. He's refused to concede the election to Biden, saying Biden's victory can be chalked up to voter fraud. And even some of Trump's cabinet, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Bill Barr, are holding the line, saying, this story's not over. As a reminder, the top election officials in 45 states this week directly told the New York Times they'd seen no evidence of, quote, any major voting issues. For four other states, the Times said it either spoke to other statewide officials or found public comments from secretaries of state denying voting issues. Only Texas has kept quiet, but the presidential race there is settled. But that hasn't stopped the Trump campaign from filing lawsuits in an attempt to challenge the results. We told you last week about how the legal challenges the campaign is filing fall into two buckets. Suits that allege voter fraud and suits looking to challenge which ballots should actually count. The lawsuits in the first bucket have already been thrown out in a number of states, including Georgia and Michigan. We called up legal analyst Caroline Polisi to ask why these legal challenges have been unsuccessful so far. The reason we're seeing all of these cases get tossed out of court is because there is an evidentiary standard you have to meet. There is a threshold that a judge is going to sort of assess the initial litigation at. And that threshold just hasn't been met in any of these cases. You know, the Trump campaign has sort of inverted the theory of um, evidentiary standards. They are operating as though there is a presumption of widespread voter fraud and that the states then must disprove that that happened. That is not the presumption. The presumption is and always has been that we have free and fair elections in the United States, that the election process in these states runs smoothly as it always has been, and therefore, well, you need to show actual evidence of widespread voter fraud. And Polisi told us that even if there are singular or one-off instances of voter fraud, that doesn't amount to massive fraud that could change the results of an election. So if a lot of these lawsuits are already getting tossed out, why is the Trump campaign still filing them? One big reason has to do with buying more time. So the strategy, A, is to at first to stall, right? To halt the count and or canvassing and or certification so that they have more time. They're going to do everything that they can to stop the media and the public at large from thinking, okay, well, this this race is over, Biden has won. And then B, they're gonna see if any of these sort of legal hooks lead them anywhere, right? They've thrown a lot at the wall. They're seeing what sticks. They're seeing what judges 
are um, amenable to what arguments, what legal theories tend to work and what don't. And frankly, they're probably waiting for more evidence, right? So they're stalling time so that they can collect this evidence that, you know, they are saying they presume they have and they're trying to get it. Okay, so they're trying to get more evidence, but they're buying time until when exactly? Well, there's kind of a big deadline coming up in the middle of December. That's when the Electoral College meets. So states have to have their election results certified by then. Which has some people asking whether the Trump administration is filing these lawsuits to throw a wrench into this process and to get some states to toss out their voting results to support Trump. Here's what that would look like. Their hope is, and it's an absolute long shot, is that if they can make enough of a case that there was widespread illegal voting, widespread voter fraud, that, well, maybe those states won't certify the popular vote and the states themselves will say, well, you know what? We're going to just take it upon ourselves to decide where our electoral college votes go to because they technically can do it. And so, you know, the long shot hope is that they don't take the popular vote and that they somehow come to the conclusion that, well, these votes should go to Trump instead of Biden and that by some miracle, those electoral college votes are cast. But before we keep going down this rabbit hole, Polisi says to pause and remember just how unlikely it is that we even get to that point, because the Trump administration would have to prove there was widespread voter fraud in this election, which is still a completely unsubstantiated claim. And Polisi also says that while it may take some time for these lawsuits to fully go through the legal process, it's a process for a reason. The overarching context is still remains that in order for any of these suits to have an actual impact on the outcome, there are so many hurdles that they would need to surmount. It just is almost inconceivable. I would have faith in our judges and our courts across the country that they will come to the right answer, just like we've had to wait in this election because of, you know, the ways in which people voted due to the pandemic. You couldn't stay up and and find out who the winner is. Well, same thing goes for these court battles. They'll get there. They'll get to the right conclusion, but it may take some time. On to our last headline of the week. There were a lot of things we forgot to do last week, like turn off CNN or put on real pants. But on the day after the 2020 election, the U.S. did do something pretty major. It left the Paris Agreement on climate change. Quick recap. The Paris Agreement, a.k.a. the Paris Climate Accord, is a historic United Nations pact that aims to reduce the impacts of climate change. Its ambitious goals focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and limiting global temperature rise this century. Since it was announced in 2015, 189 countries had been part of the deal, up until last Wednesday. And now, the United States has become the only country in the world to have dropped out of the Paris Agreement after initially signing on. So, how did we get here? In 2017, only months after taking office, President Donald Trump said, we're out. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Trump claimed the terms of the Paris Agreement, which the U.S. was instrumental in writing, would harm U.S. jobs, particularly in the coal industry. And he pledged to either renegotiate the deal or write a new treaty from scratch. But in the years that followed, neither happened. 
And so on November 4th of last year, the earliest date the U.S. could have left the deal, the Trump administration set in motion a one-year withdrawal process. So now that that timer's up and the U.S. is out of the Paris Agreement, what's going to happen? Is pollution suddenly going to fill the skies? Not really, since getting out of the deal was mostly just symbolic. That's because the Paris Agreement is a voluntary deal, and it's up to countries to set their own goals. Nobody's forced to do anything. And also, there's nothing saying a different U.S. president couldn't get the U.S. right back into the deal. Former VP Joe Biden has pledged to get the U.S. back into the Paris Agreement right away and get more aggressive about fighting climate change here at home. Biden's hopes of passing a climate plan to the tune of a couple trillion dollars with a Republican Senate might be dead on arrival. But some experts think other environmental proposals could still win bipartisan support. Dan Lashoff is the U.S. Director for the World Resources Institute, a climate research organization. There's bipartisan support for a bill to phase down the use of HFCs, the super pollutants found in refrigeration and other cooling equipment. There's clearly bipartisan interest in uh, planting trees and other nature-based solutions and in technology development, including around carbon dioxide removal. And that's just in Congress. Climate moves made by cities, states, and businesses can have a big impact on reducing emissions and they don't have to wait on Washington. But if you're still dreaming of Paris, mark Inauguration Day on your calendar. President-elect Biden has said he'd apply to get back into the deal on day one of his presidency. Turns out, he's not the only one wanting to get out in the world. These days, we're all spending a lot of time in the same routines, and it's easy to get stuck in a rut. The solution, refresh and energize with Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. It comes in a package that's easy to pop in your bag or keep in the car. Whether you need a burst of freshness to get over the 3 p.m. slump or a way to stay energized after a workout, Mentos Pure Fresh Gum has you covered. Get a burst of freshness with Mentos Pure Fresh Gum. Go to Mentos.com to find your perfect piece today. Think back to March, when we downloaded Zoom on our computers for the first time and helped our bosses find the unmute button. The early days of work from home came with their fair share of challenges and laughs. But it's nine months later. And for a lot of us, work from home has gone from temporary to permanent as COVID-19 cases in the U.S. continue to rise. I've seen two things, two categories of responses. One is, ooh, I'm starting to like remote work. I don't have a commute. I'm saving money, things are easier. Uh, My kids are still at home doing homeschooling. So much easier to coordinate and figure that out. So I'm okay with this being prolonged a little bit. And in fact, I even wanna do more of it uh, in the future. The other category of response is a straight psychological blow to people who are in this liminal or transition state thinking, let me survive this. As you're kind of like holding your breath, let me survive this uh, for as long as possible and then I can go back to normal and then reality hits. That's Sadal Neely, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. She's kind of an expert on remote work. And she told us work from home is definitely not going away. In fact, some major U.S. companies, including Microsoft and Google, have said, we're not going back anytime soon. 
think mid to late 2021. And these companies are echoing what their employees have already asked for. A recent survey revealed that over 70% of U.S. employees are worried about going back to a physical office and are saying yes, please, to remote work. Some other companies like Facebook and Zillow have gone a step further and said, we're making this whole work from home thing permanent. No need to come to the office at all, even when it's safe to do so. This remote work trend actually has bigger implications for the American workforce than debating pants versus pajamas. And because it's not going away anytime soon, Neely told us it's worth learning how to do remote work well. And that starts with embracing some of the benefits. One of the gifts that remote work gives us is what's called flex time, meaning we can actually cut up the day in ways that works for us, including taking a walk or walking our dog at 11 o'clock, as opposed to the structured nine to five that's imposed in office buildings. And while that flex time is something you've hopefully taken advantage of, you still may not feel refreshed during the work week. If you feel like you've been working longer hours or you feel more exhausted by your workday, that's normal. Neely told us Zoom fatigue is real. One of the things that we're seeing is that people are getting burned out. Burned out because the boundary between home life and work life is blurring. People are working longer hours, which would be okay if they chose it, but it's kind of this blurring that's seeping into our other lives that's creating the burden of burnout. Once you burn out, your motivation is low, you, you feel not only the challenges of remote work, but you're also exhausted. So it's time to step back and say, what skills do I need? What kind of self-care do I implement in my world? And what are the advantages and benefits of remote work that I can focus on instead of suffering through a lot of things? I think it's very important to establish a start time to say, I will not start working until 8 a.m. or 8.30 or 9, whatever you're, or 10. But so whatever you, you wanna do, you need to be strict about your start time. And you need to be strict about your end time. And no matter what happens, keep to those. You need to take care of yourself as well. So keep a schedule where your workday actually has a start and an end. Got it. What else? People notice that if they're sitting all day, because we're not where we, you know, we used to travel to work, walk around at work, go out to lunch, exercise, this and that, that's kind of gone away. You have to find a way to create it. So some kind of movement throughout the day is important. It could be, you know, one example that I love is this one person said, I actually shower and get dressed and I walk around the block a couple of times to simulate my old commute and then I go sit down in my house. Even if you've got your own work from home routine down, collaborating virtually has still proven to be a challenge for teams and managers. So we asked Neely what managers and team members can actually do to create a healthy work from home environment for each other. So number one, what managers are fighting is the phenomenon of being out of sight, out of sync, out of mind. 
So they need to make sure that everyone and their team and their group is in sync, that the shared goals that they have is clear. The second thing that managers need to make sure they do is understand each individual's constraints and potential contributions that they can make to their group given the remote environment. For example, giving people flex time, meaning you cut up the day in whatever way that works for you, making sure that there are some overlaps when you have to meet with people, but giving people flex time not only increases job satisfaction, but it makes people more productive. The third thing that managers need to do is discuss very openly with their group what their communication norms should look like in a way that's productive. And that communication doesn't always have to be and shouldn't always be about work. My suggestion is to find 90 minutes in a one-week period to do something together that has nothing to do with work. An hour is very easy to do. Say, okay, we'll just, you know, have lunch and, you know, we'll have virtual lunch versus what? 90 minutes. Okay. It has to go beyond virtual lunch. It forces depth. Okay. So even if we make these changes, there's still the question of whether or not working from home is as productive as being in an office, right? Neely says you can tell your boss that it is. Three decades worth of research that says remote work actually increases productivity, not decreases productivity. But you can also tell your boss that productivity is conditional and requires companies and managers to make some changes to help you do it right. It only works if certain conditions are met. Like you have all the equipment that you need, the technology that you need, like the space to sit and do work. The other thing that you need to be productive when you work from home is autonomy self-direction and autonomy. So if you have managers who want to micromanage or feel like if I don't see you, I don't control what's going on, it actually backfires. Remote work promotes productivity provided certain conditions are met. All right. So the research says that remote work is productive, even if we have our dogs next to us. It's a lifestyle a lot of Americans say suits them, at least for now. And while we know a number of companies are going all in on remote work, there's still one big question we haven't answered yet. So it's time for our crystal ball. What does the future of work actually look like? Neely says we can put that crystal ball away and we can make these predictions based on data. I think that we're going to end up in a hybrid kind of a world where people are going to work from home Not all the time, but more than they ever did. It could be once a week. It could be twice a week. It could be three times a week. And what it means for the workplace is that you're going to routinely have people who are either in the office or not the office, but still working. That's a setup that economically benefits companies. It is less expensive from a real estate standpoint, much less expensive. So you don't need to keep Manhattan or San Francisco real estate when 30, 40% of your employees now don't want to work uh, from the office all the time. And that kind of hybrid setup where some people are in the office while others are zooming in can also benefit you by giving you more freedom. The other thing that I think we're going to see is population redistribution. If you do not 
need to be in the same physical location as your office. You can live 30 miles away, 50 miles away. People can live wherever they want and still work pretty effectively. This is what this has proven for a lot of people. So I think you're going to see much more life satisfaction because people are going to live in areas that they want to live in, close to families possibly, or in kind of weather that they're interested in, whatever pulls people. Sounds good to us. So what's the skim? Remote work is here to stay, at least for now, because as more and more companies delay their return to the office, this could actually be a reality for a lot longer. So it's worth taking time to develop a sustainable work from home routine for you and your team. And if you need some extra tips, Neely's book, The Remote Work Revolution is coming out in March, 2021. And if you've got tips, send your best work from home hacks to audio at theskim.com and we could feature them on an upcoming episode. Before we go, we know you've already heard about the humans heading to the White House in January, but the other thing everyone's talking about? The pets of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Hey, champ, you want to play golf? <laughs> Meet Champ and Major, President-elect Biden's two German shepherds. While Champ already knows his way around D.C., having been in the Biden family since 2008, he'll have to show Major the ropes. Major wasn't rescued by the Bidens until 2018. As the White House staff restocks the kitchen with kibble, we decided to look into the history of presidential pets. It turns out that many recent presidents are dog people. With the notable exception of petless President Trump, Presidents Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush each had dogs in the White House. But don't count out the first felines either. President John F. Kennedy and Jimmy Carter had cats during their administrations. And this tradition of presidential pets goes far beyond cats and dogs and includes possums. Yeah, Herbert Hoover had a possum named Billy. Billy reportedly wandered onto the White House grounds and got a new family once President Hoover adopted him. And also raccoons. Calvin Coolidge's pet raccoon was named Rebecca, who he walked on a leash. And don't forget about Teddy Roosevelt. His family basically had a zoo that included snakes, dogs, cats, a badger, birds, and guinea pigs. While a lot of first families brought these pets with them to the White House, sometimes foreign leaders also gave animals to the president as diplomatic gifts. That's a lot less common now, but back in the day, President Martin Van Buren received a pair of tiger cubs from the Sultan of Oman. Ultimately, these guys found their home at a zoo. So while the Bidens are dog people and not tiger people or raccoon people, they'll be restoring a time-honored tradition come January when Champ and Major become the first pets of the United States. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Justine Davey and Luke Vargas with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Alex Carr. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 